Hi, I'm Aaron from New Jersey. I'm Will in Atlanta. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me. If you'd like to support the show like I did, or even better than I did, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Welcome to a special podcast-only edition of The Sound of Young America. I'm your host, Jesse Thorne. The movie A Thousand Clowns has always been near and dear to my heart. And as I've gotten older, I've found more and more people in the world of comedy, especially for whom it's a, a really important film. In my case, the significance of the film is very personal. Uh, my folks, uh, <laughs> let's just say they've never gotten along well. They were divorced when I was a very young child and pretty much at each other's throats until I was a teenager. And uh, they don't agree on much, frankly. In fact, I think you could probably boil down the list of things on which they agree to about two. Uh, one of them is James Brown. I think pretty much everybody can agree on James Brown. The other one is A Thousand Clowns. A Thousand Clowns is a movie about uh, a comedy writer, a comedy writer who's living the life of a, of a nonconformist or uh, I guess you could say an eccentric making up holidays, giving people nicknames, collecting eagles and other weird things, and taking care of a young man, a 13-year-old. The thing is, his life is sort of falling apart. He's been unemployed for a long time since he quit his job on a television show that he considered to be beneath him. The kid wants him to get a job, but he's refused, and now social services is at his door. They say if he doesn't reform, he'll have to give up his nephew. The central question of the film is how he'll change his life to become an adult without giving up what makes him special. I mentioned that this movie is a favorite of both of my parents. My father is a veteran who served um, on an aircraft carrier uh, that was... Um, bombing Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Vietnam and Laos um, in the early to mid-1960s. And he was serving on the carrier when A Thousand Clowns was in theaters. In fact, he had two jobs on the carrier. One was loading bombs, um, which was, as you can imagine, nightmarishly dangerous and uh, traumatic. Um, the other was projecting films. Now, most of the films that he projected were tail films from the airplanes uh, that he was loading bombs onto. In essence, he was showing pilots uh, the places that they had destroyed with their bombs. The other thing that he projected was the entertainment film that happened to be on board, and that was A Thousand Clowns. My dad told me when we did the event that you're about to hear that... Um, if I didn't talk to Barry Gordon, I would essentially be disowned. Barry Gordon plays the nephew in the film, Nick, and he was our guest. My dad said that he watched A Thousand Clowns 60 times, and it was the thing that kept him sane when he was in the service. Before we get to my conversation with Barry Gordon, one of the stars of A Thousand Clowns, that was recorded live at CineFamily here in Los Angeles after a very special screening of the film. Let's hear a clip from the movie. In this clip, 
the protagonist, Murray, played by Jason Robards, is explaining how his nephew, Nick, played by my guest, Barry Gordon, came to be in his care. He is, I should say, explaining it to two social services personnel who just showed up at his door with designs on taking the child away. Well, uh, my sister Elaine arrived here one day with uh, two suitcases, uh, a hat box, a blue parakeet, a dead goldfish, and a five-year-old child. A few days later, she went downstairs to buy a pack of uh, filter-tip cigarettes. Six years later, she returned for the suitcases and the hat box. Now, the parakeet I'd given away, the goldfish I had long since flushed down the toilet, and the five-year-old child had, with very little effort, become six years older. When Elaine returned for her luggage, I uh, reminded her of the child and the pack of filter-tip cigarettes. And then, I don't know, I slapped my sister. Sister cried at some length and then proceeded calmly, briefly, to explain to me her well-practiced theory on the meaning of life, a philosophy falling somewhere to the left of Whoopi. Well, that was almost a year ago, and I still got Nick. But, uh, I am sure she must have had some concern about Nicholas, uh, about the child. His name is not Nicholas, uh, or even Nick. You see, not having given him a last name, Elaine felt reticent about assigning him a first one. How did you communicate with the... I made a deal with him when he was six, up to which time he was known rather casually as Chubby, that he could use whatever name he wished for however long he wished until his 13th birthday, at which time he'd have to pick a name he liked permanently. Now he went through a long period of dogs' names when he was little, King and Rover having a real vogue there for a while. For three months, he referred to himself as Big Sam. Then there was Little Max, Snoopy, Chip, Rock, Rex, Mike, Marty, Lamont, Chevrolet, Woodrow, Lefty, The Phantom. Uh, he received his library card last year in the name of Raphael Sabatini. His Cub Scout membership lists him as Dr. Morris Fishbein. Uh, Nick seems to be the one that'll stick, though. The great Jason Robards in A Thousand Clowns. By the way, if you haven't seen A Thousand Clowns, um, it's been out of print since the 1990s, and it only very rarely screens on television. There was a hot minute there where it was on um, Netflix Instant View, and then it disappeared from Netflix Instant View. We only barely got a print at CineFamily. In fact, we ordered it the last day that you could order prints before MGM shut down its print ordering service because it's going into bankruptcy. So in order to make the film a little more available, you will find, if you look in our forum in the discussion thread of this post, a torrent of the film. Um, If any copyright holders have any issue with that, we're putting it up for educational and critical discussion purposes. We're we're happy to take it down. Um, uh, We just would like people to have the chance to see the film so that we can discuss it more deeply. So you might want to watch the movie. In the meantime, let's go to the stage of the Santa family and my discussion with Barry Gordon, who, in addition to being the star of A Thousand Clowns, um, on both on Broadway and in the film, has had an exceptional career as a character actor that has ranged from playing Jack Benny's son on The Jack Benny Show, having a recurring character on Leave it to Beaver, singing the song I Got, I'm Getting Nothing for Christmas as like a four-year-old, one of the biggest Christmas hits of all time. 
um, to, uh, gosh, he was on Archie Bunker's place. Uh, he played one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He was on the Snorks. He was president of SAG for a number of years after, uh, in his 30s, he went and finished his college degree and then went to law school and became a lawyer. He's had this really remarkable career. He, he even ran for Congress and very nearly became a congressman. So let's go to the stage of the Cine family and my conversation with Barry Gordon. Our guest this evening, we're so lucky to have him be part of this, has spent um, more than 50 years now in show business. Um, he started quite literally at the age of three, and he, among other things, was a guest star on Leave it to Beaver. Uh, he was a recurring character on the last two seasons of All in the Family, uh, which was known as Archie Bunker's Place, I believe, the last two seasons. Um, he was... The man was Donatello in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> um, he, uh, he's been the, uh, the quick chocolate milk bunny. Um, he went to law school when he was in his 30s and went on to become uh, the longest tenured president of the Screen Actors Guild, uh, having served one more year than Ronald Reagan and Charlton Heston. Um, he was 12 years ago very nearly a congressman from Pasadena. Um, these days he spends most of his time as a talk radio host. Uh, and of course he was one of the stars of this film. Please welcome Barry Gordon. <laughs> I just came up here and was just I completely see the stairs. I just, uh... So before we start talking about the movie yeah. um, and uh, the play that uh, begat the movie, let's talk a little bit about you and your career as a real child actor, a child, a pre-adolescent actor. So what did you do to start your career when you were three? Well, you know, some of it may be apocryphal. I don't, I don't have a great memory of, of what happened, but I do know that um, I actually started as a singer. And uh, when I was very little, we lived in a development um, in Albany, New York. And I used to kind of walk around once I could walk, and I would sing for the neighbors. Um, whether they wanted me to or not, but I, I basically sang for the neighbors. And um, one of the neighbors submitted me to something that was called the Ted Mac Amateur Hour. Now, the, the Ted Mac Amateur Hour was the precursor to Star Search, which was the precursor to American Idol. Um, it was a talent show that went all around the country looking for talent, and they went to what was called the Tri-City area of Albany, Schenectady, and Troy. And um, 
and we got a notice that um, this neighbor had submitted me. We didn't even know at first who had submitted me, and then we found out afterward um, to audition for them. How that came about, I'm not exactly sure. My father was not really in show business, but he was a radio announcer uh, in Albany, New York, and he used to bring records home, and I used to just listen to the records over and over and over again. So when we got this notice, my dad brought me down to audition. Um, he was told to, you know, why did you bring your kid? You should leave your kid at home. And he said, no, you don't understand. That's who's going to audition. And I auditioned. I did a song called Cry, which was a big hit in the 50s by Johnny Ray. And I got on the national show um, and came in uh, second, kind of like Congress. I came in, <laughs> I came in second, um, and, uh, but I was noticed by uh, someone who had a show for young talent called Star Time out of New York. And he was actually the, the manager of a lot of these kids, and he was the manager of Connie Francis, who turned out to be a big star in the mid and late 50s, particularly late 50s. And she was on the show. She was like the oldest person on the show, or one of the older people on the show. And I turned out to be the youngest person on the show. So by then I was four, and, um, <laughs> and I had started that. And it was all singing, although I did sketches. And then because I was kind of something new and original, you know, being as young as I was, um, I started to do a lot of variety shows. So I was on Milton Berle and I was on Perry Como. And in fact, the, the first time I was on with Milton Berle was the same show that Elvis Presley uh, was on. So, so that keeps surfacing from time to time in, in people's collections. And I met a band leader on that show who had a Christmas record that he wanted a vocalist for, and that was called Nothing for Christmas. And so I recorded Nothing for Christmas. It became one of the top ten, you know, Christmas records of all time. Why, I'll never know. And <laughs> the charismatic and, lead vocals. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that. It, it still never, it never has become one of my favorite songs. I have to be totally <laughs> honest about that. But it started a whole career. So I got to do a lot of acting. Um, I had done Beaver, um, which kind of has a claim to fame in an interesting way because it was the first sitcom uh, to deal with divorce because the character I played had divorced parents. Um, and uh, and Beaver was, the, the Beaver was jealous because, you know, he only had two parents and I had like six so, so he felt, you know, somehow he was getting the, the short end of the stick. And, um, and then I did, I played a, a psychopath, I, I, all kinds of things. And then I played Jack Benny as a child, and I did Jack Benny show like three times. And um, one of the things that I did, which was an Alfred Hitchcock episode um, called The Contest of Aaron Gold, in which um, the, uh, the other star, it was, it was me as the kid who went to camp and was building this, this knight in pottery class that was a really beautifully sculpted knight, but it only had one arm. And the, the people were, you know, the, the parents were crazy and angry, and 
you know, this is morbid and this is ridiculous and why are you building something with only one arm? And, of course, it turns out his father comes and he has one arm. So, uh, but it was called The Contest of Aaron Gold and the person that played opposite me was Sidney Pollack, who was acting at that time, not directing at that time. So, somehow that show got to the attention of Herb Gardner. And... So I was out here, and it was a very strange situation because I had an, uh, an audition for some kind of a movie. I don't even remember what it was. But all I do remember is that as I was leaving, and I felt I was completely wrong for it. I think it was like for a 16-year-old, and you know I was 12. And so as I was leaving, someone said to me, are you familiar with Jason Robards? And I was, because I'd actually just recently seen a movie he had done called By Love Possessed. So I was familiar with him, and so I said, yes, I, you know, I am familiar with him. And that's all that the person said. Well, thank you for coming in, and that was, I mean, why Jason Robards came popping up. It was probably close to a, um, no, it was probably 11, because it was close to a year later that my agent called and said we got a script in for a play and so uh, they sent it to me and I read it and I just had never read anything that fascinating in my life and it was such an interesting piece tell me what as a 12 year old what, what, what about it fascinated you I think that probably for me it was the language there was just a, a poetry to it and an interesting, you know, there were just interesting things, interesting words. And, you know, having done a lot of comedy, you, you, you know, you get funny words and you get clever words. But these were just so interesting and these big monologues and these big speeches. And I thought, wow, you know, this is like literature. I mean, this is like really interesting stuff. And so... Um, the thing that I guess was the biggest shock is that I was basically offered the role and I never read for it. I never met anybody about it and they offered me the role. Um, and we had negotiated and done all of that stuff and they brought me back to New York to meet with Jason and meet Herb and meet Fred Coe who was the director. And so I went back to New York and uh, with my with my mom. And the interesting thing was that then that was the first time that I read. And what I later found out was they were auditioning constantly. I mean, they were they you know they had to have had a plan B in case I didn't work out. But thank God, you know, they felt that I did work out, and so um, so that was kind of it. And and uh, I ended up doing the play for uh, for its entire run, and then I did the road tour for its entire run, which was nine months, and then I came back and did the movie. So, the truth be told, I'm a lot older in this movie than people think I am. I was um, let's see, by the time I did the movie, I was fifteen. It's interesting to me that you spent this whole period of your life with this material. Yeah. That's starting from the ages of 12 to 16, which is the time in your life when you're 
you know, learning to be an adult, that you were dealing with this material that was built around that theme. How did your relationship to it change as you did it over those years? I mean, I think that I became more of that middle-aged kid the longer we went. And while it didn't change my life that much, you know, directly, um, I became conscious of, of the similarities, I think, in Nick and me um, because I was able to analyze them better and understand them better. You know, when you start, when you're, when you're 12, actually when we opened, I had just turned 13. So when you start that way, you know, it's, you, you, you're first you're looking at it as an acting job, and it was an acting job. It's a small cast. Yeah. How did your relationship with these people that you were working with, Jason Robarts and Fred Coe, who was the director and yes. producer, how did that develop over the course of this four years? Um, I had a very, very close relationship with Jason. Um, I had a very close relationship with Sandy Dennis, who did it on, uh, on Broadway. Um, and, uh, you know, and Gene and, and Bill and all of them, we all became really good friends. Uh, during the film, I became good friends with Barbara, but not as long-lasting as it was with Sandy. I mean, Sandy virtually became an older sister. Um, she was very close to my parents. That um, we did a lot of things together. We just, it, it was very much uh, a feeling that it was another person in the family. Uh, with Barbara, we had a great relationship, but I never really got to know Barbara as well because when you do a movie, you know, you're doing it in pieces, and so you're not seeing someone every day, you know, because there were a lot of scenes that I was not in, and and so you know there'd be gaps between you know seeing people and. And, uh, you know, but we would take the, uh, a, a limo, we'd take a car that they'd pick us up every morning because I was living in the apartment uh, hotel next to the Dakota, which was where Jason lived. So the, a car would make the route and they'd take us to the studio in Long Island, which was called the Meyerberg Studios at that time. Did you admire Jason? Oh, Totally. Totally. I call him Jason because we're close. Yes. <laughs> yes. I admired him. I loved him. Um, he was an incredible uh, person to be with and to work with. Uh, we became very, very close. And, um, and he is just an extraordinarily warm, wonderful man. And, um, and as everyone knows, I mean, it's not telling tales. He was having problems at the time. Um, with alcohol uh, but it never affected his work on stage and it certainly never affected his work on film um, he was a consummate professional and just an incredible person to be around and we you know we would be playing ukuleles together at 4 o'clock in the morning uh, you know and, and just having a wonderful time it was just a, a wonderful kind of electric period of my life and Jason was such a, a strong part of that. I, I was talking with uh, Hadrian, who's the uh, founder and director of CineFamily, where we are right now. Um, and that's for the benefit of the people listening to the recording. Um, and we were talking about how this 
this film and play presaged the counterculture. Yeah. And you happen to have been pretty much exactly the right age to be really in the thick of things. I mean, you were I'm, I'm 20 when 1968 and 21 mm-hmm. in 1969. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think being part of this colored how you looked at that as it was happening? That's a great question because I was never part of the counterculture. And I've never thought about it before, but maybe it did have something to do with it because I guess the biggest part of Nick that's in me is I never really admired Murray Burns. I wished I could be Murray Burns. You know, everyone kind of wants that fantasy, but when he walks out um, and says basically, you know, I have to be who I am and I don't care if I lose the kid or not, which is where it goes until you know, what we called the third act when, when we, we did it as a play. Um, I, I didn't admire that moment. So, so it was very easy for me to play. I mean, I loved him. I thought he was fun, a great playmate. But, you know, as the kid says, as Nick says, he was developing into a bum. So I was always pretty much a straight arrow, boring as hell actually, but I was, I was kind of a straight arrow during that, that period of time. There's this beautiful part in the film where um, uh, Murray is explaining to Barbara Harris's character that um, there are a thousand versions of her that she hasn't met yeah. and she, she should get out and meet them. Um, and, you know, when you're growing up and, and becoming a grown-up, I mean, the, one of the biggest things that you have to do is um, make peace with the passing of possibilities. You know, that these, these things that you could be are leaving because you are becoming what you are. <laughs> and um, I wonder, as somebody who... who had this career that started when you were three, how that time went in, in your life? Like, if there was ever a time when you imagined a different path for yourself. I imagine a different path for myself every day that I'm alive. <laughs> and part of, the, part of the issue is that I have actually acted on them. <laughs> and so... And, and uh, you know, not always successfully. I mean, it, you know, some people call it a renaissance man, and I call it someone who hasn't grown up yet because I haven't, you know, I love everything I do, but there's so many things that I love that it would take me, you know, five lifetimes to do them all because I, I love law, I love politics, I love history, I love doing talk radio, I love teaching, now I'm teaching, which is, which is wonderful. Um, at Cal State LA I'm teaching. Um, one of my students is here, I think that was the woo. Uh, um, I'm teaching a wonderful graduate class uh, in, in uh, acting for television, interestingly. So, uh, so there's so much that I love to do, and probably if I just settled on one thing, I might have been you know, more successful, but I feel that I've had a really rich life because I've been able to do so much. And, uh, and uh, so, yeah, there are 
a thousand clowns in all of us. There are all of those personalities in all of us, and some of them bury them. And I was kind of a person that said, heck, you know, I'm going to try as many things as I can. Like you, I'm a talk radio host, and I have this st- I have this studio in my house. And in my studio, there's a lobby card from A Thousand Clowns in a, in a frame up on the wall. And... Um, and I interview on my show a lot of comedians and people from the comedy world and people all the time this is a film that hasn't that has been out of print on VHS since the early 90s Um, people all the time come into my office and look up on the wall and say oh a thousand clowns Um, uh, the other day I think it was uh, Nick Kroll the, the great comedian Nick Kroll saw Signs. Oh, a thousand clowns. In fact, um, uh, there are a couple of uh, comedy writers here. Brian Stack from the Conan Show is here, mm-hmm. and had that same reaction when he saw that. Um, and I wonder what um, what kind of reactions you've gotten from people who's for whom this film has really been like a, a, a genuinely life changing. Very much, uh, very, uh, very frequently, I get that kind of reaction from this film. Um, uh, I have Even, a, I have a very say... close friend who who uh, we met recently. Uh, we've been friends now for a few years, and this was a he said a life changing film for him. Um, it's you know being part of it. It's hard to quite figure out why. Um, and I probably need you to explain to me why, and 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 others to explain why. Um, but it, there's no question that I have met so many people that have felt it was life-changing, have seen it 40, 50, 60 times. It, it, it's fascinating. Let me, can I talk a little bit about the film? Cause, sure. Because there's always fun accidents. And a lot of this film, and, and I think sometimes great art comes about accidentally. Um... This film was shot very much like a stage play. And you can still see that in large chunks of the, of the play when we're in the apartment. It's, it's very theatrical. I mean, you could, you could see the shots. They're very, very... It's very much like shooting a stage play. And Fr- Fred Coe had been a television director. Right, and had not done a movie before. And Herb Gardner had not done a screenplay before. In fact, Herb Gardner, and a lot of people don't know this, Herb Gardner was, what, 26 when he wrote this play. So, uh, you know, he was new to the business. Fred Coe was not. But, um, But what happened was this was shot, again, very much like a stage play by people who weren't, I think quite sure of what they were doing. And when when I was on the road, you know, I was hearing what was going to happen to A Thousand Clowns. And first one day it would be, well, Jack Lemmon's going to do it. And then it was that um, Steve McQueen and Natalie Wood were going to do it. Because they had just done a, a movie, Love with a Proper Stranger. Or that, uh, you know, Frank Sinatra was going to do it with a bunch of kids. You know, so, so, so while I was on the road, these rumors would keep popping up, and we'd keep, we'd keep hearing all of this stuff. And then before the road tour ended, 
You know, I got the call because I was the first person cast in the movie because I guess they just didn't want to go and and bother, you know, searching again. And um, uh, so they they cast me in the movie, but I didn't know who I was going to be working with. And then they called and they said, it's going to be Jason. And why wouldn't it be Jason? It had to be Jason. But the thing is that the movie would have been in that it would have been in color. It would have been very polished. It would have been a Hollywood director. It probably would have been a Hollywood scriptwriter taking it over. That's where it was going to go. Instead, it stayed with the originators. It stayed with her, but it stayed with Fred, who then proceeded to cast almost the entire cast, except for Sandy Dennison and A. Larry Haynes, were replaced by Mar- uh, Marty and, and Barbara. So we were shooting this thing, and and it was, you know, they had a couple of those scenes outside in the junkyard and the thing, and they had that stuff. But they did a screening of it, and the play was about, it's a very long play. The play was about two hours and 40 minutes, I think. Well, the movie was about two hours and 45 or two hours and 50 minutes. And they were looking at this thing and they didn't know what to do. Because this was a long, you know, the dialogue was still great and all of that, but it was this long play. And what I understand is that Fred Coe at that point kind of dissociated himself from the film. He was doing other things and he never was really part of the post-production. The post-production was Herb Gardner and Ralph Rosenblum. And of course, you know, Ralph Rosenblum was the editor of all the early Woody Allen films. And they got together. And Ralph was really the person that had an incredible sense of cinema. Herb had an incredible imagination. So all of a sudden, what you see is a movie that for its time was so creative. I mean, you know, they had the vice, they had the love montage before they were doing love montages in the United States. They had the bicycle scene before Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid did the bicycle scene. They had all of this stuff and it was all kind of added stuff. Because while they were cutting, they kept putting in these creative things on the outside. A lot of it, by the way, wasn't me. A lot of the walking, like when they're walking around with the kite, that's actually a wonderful actor who was my understudy on the road named Barry Pearl, who was in Greece. You might remember Barry from, from the movie Greece. And he was the one that was walking around with the kite, and, you know, because I was back here in, in L.A. doing other things. So the creativity... The, the, the quirky cutting, the, the interesting ways that they broke in in different places and broke up that feeling of a stage play, that was entirely the result of having a movie that didn't work. They had a film, they, they didn't storyboard that. They had a film that didn't work and they had to figure out what to do. And so they let their imaginations run wild. And that's why when people look at it, they say, my gosh, this is so unusual, so different for its time. It may not be as different now because a lot of people who've done these things now 
over and over again. But at that time, it was very, very, very fresh. And you know, and I think that's why it got nominated for Best Picture, and 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 all of those things happened. So the credit has to go to Herb Gardner and Ralph Rosenblum, who really created this movie out of whole cloth and and did an amazing job. I know there's a room full of giant film geeks here. <laughs> I know because because when you say the name of an editor whose <laughs> most notable work was in the early '70s, and you get like a big round of applause. That's right. Um, I think that's how you can recognize an audience like this. Is there? We can take one or two questions um, before we wrap things up. Um, yes, sir. Uh, yeah, for the early '60s, this uh, play and movie are kind of daring in the fact that yeah. one, it's talk about talking about a child out of wedlock, and two, you know, that partisan be damned. Uh, Robards and uh, Sandra, you know, spent the night together. Was any kind of heat? Uh, from the play or the film among you know people saying you know, depict, that you're depicting something that was still kind of taboo at the time. For the benefit of the recording, the question is that um, uh, there are things in the film, including an out of wedlock or OW child, um, and uh, and an implied night of passion, right? Um, that were very risque for the early 1960s. Well, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, because you have to think that when we were nominated in 65, the other movie, another movie that was nominated and won an award for Julie Christie was Darling, which was pretty, even more risque. So it, I think it was starting to turn. I mean, you had Room at the Top by then. Um, you, you know, you had some pretty uh, frank... Um, films that had already happened. I think that the foreign influence was already taking hold. So while you didn't see it as much in something you know that was that was American, uh, and in theater that had been a long time. I mean, they'd done all of that in in theater, and you know we never showed anything. So uh, you know we got away with actually the language is saltier in the play. You know because uh, when he says "great damn," he's really saying another. You know. Another kind of dam. Um, so, so uh, we're so not no, going to say what kind of dam. No, that is. we don't want to. Not on the air. Not on the air. We don't want you to lose your FCC license or whatever. But, but no. Uh, so, but what I do want to say is the biggest change to the film, and I think the best one, and I think one that still moves me to this day, is the ending of the film, because that is not how the play ends. The play ends with him yelling out the window, saying, ready for the Hawaiian number, putting on Stars and Stripes forever, and everybody's happy. And the, the part where he's outside and that incredible shot from such a distance where he looks like a, a flea on the screen. I mean, he, you can hardly find him in that shot. It's just an amazing shot that they did. That actually was from the end of Act Two. After Sandy leaves, that's where he has the thing of campers, I can't think of anything to say. And then in Act Three, everything's up and everything's happy. So the, the play was more traditional. This still is so strong. When he's out there, he knows what he has to do. But the pain of doing it, um, and yet he still has the sprint when he runs to the bus, and people still talk to me about what that ending means. 
you know, is he happy? Is he not happy? Is is this going to work? Is it not going to work? And by adding that that question mark at the end of the film, I think really makes the film very powerful. And don't you? I mean, because I think that if you'd seen, you know, just happy, happy, happy at the end, that feels that feels Hollywood is what it feels, you know, even though it was in the original Broadway show. <laughs> Um, and this became, I think, much more interesting as, a, as an ending. Barry, the, remember that whole question I asked about life changing and people yeah. coming up to you? Same thing, but for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, oh, now that was life changing. <laughs> that was really life changing, yeah. Well, that was, that was just a strange situation. I mean, imagine getting that script. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, I had my... My, but the agent who handled animation and, and he said uh, you, you know you've, you've got an audition for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles now this was not <laughs> I don't want to confuse anybody I did not do the movies um, I did the, the original cartoon, cartoon series yeah, the original cartoon which was on for about nine years actually we were, we were doing it for a very long time but I mean imagine that that's you know, that's what you get. And I said, oh, come on, you know, someone's pulling my leg. I didn't even think that it was a legitimate piece because I'd never seen the, 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 car- the comic book or the graphic novel or whatever it was called. But um, or the underground novel, uh, underground comic book, I think is what they were calling it in those days. But, uh, oh, yeah, that was, that was unbelievable. And then, of course, everybody read for every part. So in the audition, you know, so, but they, they put together just a wonderful, wonderful group of people. I don't know if you know a lot about animation people, but they had just sensational people. Rob Paulson, uh, who was Raphael, and Townsend Coleman, uh, who was um, Michelangelo, and Cam Clark. I mean, these guys, these guys are real animation guys. I get lucky every once in a while, and I guess I have to say I was lucky to get a nine-year series, but, but uh, you know, but these guys are just the cream of the crop when it comes to animation. I, I can only imagine the, like, moment when you open up the script and you're like, and you see, I mean, just yeah. seeing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles That's on the it. cover... Which seems so normal to us now. Yeah. <laughs> You're like marking down your motivation. Pizza. Yeah. Pizza. Wants pizza. Right. With a, with a Zen Buddhist rat um, <laughs> uh, leading everything. And uh, yeah, it was, it was very, very, very strange. But okay. Well, I promise we won't bring up snorks. Which boy, we, oh, on. you better not bring up snorks. <laughs> But boy, we had fun. I got to tell you, that was the most fun I, I've ever had uh, how about doing, doing Turtles. One more Thousand Clowns question before we go. We're way back there in the corner. Barry, thank you so much for being here tonight. It's Very my great pleasure. Thank you all for, for coming out. Thank you. You can find Barry Gordon online at barrygordonfromleftfield.com. Special thanks to Julia Smith, who arranged our interview, and to all the folks at CineFamily, the nonprofit movie showing organization slash movie theater here in Los Angeles. You can find them online at CineFamily.org. Remember, next week begins the Max Fun Pledge Drive. So, you know, get your credit card typing number typing in fingers warm. We'll see you next time on The Sound of Young America.